Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37 is where we are. We, of course, are continuing our series, A Family for the World. We are looking at the story of the family that God chose uh, to redeem and make his own, to call out of this world, to call a people to himself. And so that started with the call of Abraham. And so we, we've been tracing his story and, and now we're getting into his descendants whom God promised an everlasting covenant. He promised that he would give them a land, that he would make them a nation, and that that family that would grow into that nation would become a light to the whole world. They would be a family for the whole world. And so we looked at Abraham and then we looked at his son, Isaac. In these last few weeks, we've been looking in detail into the life of Jacob, Abraham's grandson. But now today, we're going to look even further down this family line into Jacob and his sons. So let's pray and uh, let's, let's open up the service with uh, the word of God today and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we pray, Lord, that today, as we hear your word, that you would speak to us truly and change us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we're following this story, last week we saw a beautiful display of forgiveness and reconciliation when Jacob and his brother Esau reunited after 20 years of estrangement, 20 years of being apart, not speaking to one another, not being involved in each other's lives at all. These brothers with so much animosity between them before, last week we saw they finally, they came together and under God's grace, they were able to forgive one another. And as readers of this family story, which there's been a lot of drama, right? This family, you think your family has drama, this family has extra drama but I think we're at this point in this storyline where we see and we're hopeful that this theme of reconciliation will continue. This theme of forgiveness will continue. This theme of brotherly love, will it continue? Well, let's find out. Genesis 37. I want us to read this story about Jacob's kids, and then we're going to make some points at the end today. So Genesis 37 Beginning in verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So stop right there. <laughs> we know that God's plan is moving forward, right? His plan to Abraham to make his family great, to give them their own land, to give them their own space so that they can become that light to the rest of the world. It's moving forward in spite of all the foolish mistakes of this family. Verse two, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So we see the storyline shifting from Jacob as the main character now to his children, particularly Joseph, right? And remember, 
Jacob's family. You've got 12 different brothers from four different mothers, okay? A little confusing, but that's how it was, all right? And Joseph is the 11th. He's the 11th in the 12 of Jacob's sons. So Joseph, as a 17-year-old younger brother, may have been a little bit of a tattletale here, tattletale here right? Like he's, he's bringing a bad report of his brothers. Like, hey, dad, these guys are goofing off, right? They're not doing what you asked them to do. The sheep are wandering everywhere. I'm just letting you know, right? He's coming back to his dad and tattletaling a little bit here on his older brothers. Anybody's kids do that? No? Just mine. Okay. Uh, Verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Now remember, when it says Israel, that's the name that God gave Jacob, right? We saw that last week. So Jacob's name, you may see it here referred to as Jacob or Israel, is the same person. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him so ironically Jacob is making the exact same mistake that his father Isaac made remember that Isaac showed favoritism to Esau. So this is causing all kinds of relational damage and strife within this family. Jacob Jacob even makes Joseph a special robe, right? He makes him a special robe for him to wear. Now, normally, the 11th child would only get hand-me-downs, right? But this, no, 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 no. Joseph is getting the latest fashion, right? It's a robe, not just a robe, it's a robe of many colors, probably very expensive, but you can't overemphasize that this is the same problem Isaac sparked between Jacob and Esau, and now, Jacob, you're doing the same thing that your dad did. So these older brothers hate Joseph because of this. Verse five, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, you kind of understand where the brothers are coming from here, right? I mean, their little brother, he's 17 years old. He's telling them basically, hey, I had this prophetic vision that all of you guys are going to bow down to me, that all of you guys are going to, that I'm going to rule over you, right? So is this a dream that's kind of crazy or is it a prophetic vision? Well, even if it is, maybe Joseph shouldn't have shared it, but either way he did. And it only further angers these brothers. So we're going to skip down a little bit, but in verses 9 and 11, he has another dream, very similar, except this time his mom and dad were included as bowing down to him. So Jacob one day sends Joseph out into the fields to check on his brothers, but they're, they're far away. They've moved to, on to another region as they take care of their flocks in a place called Dothan, and you can read about that in verses 12 through 17 
But for sake of time, I want to continue down to verse 18. So, so Jacob has sent Joseph to go check on, on the brothers. They're in a further away region. And so look at verse 18. They, the brothers, saw him from afar. So Joseph is coming to them. They see him out in the distance. I'm sure those many colors on his robe are glistening in the sun. They see him, right? And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. All right, so these brothers, they've had enough, right? To the point that they're ready and willing to murder their younger brother. They're willing to deceive their dad, Jacob. Again, notice that irony, right? Jacob, who once was the neglected brother, deceived his father, and now his sons are experiencing that same neglect, and they're ready to deceive. Verse 21, but when Reuben, Reuben's the oldest, when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben, the oldest son, has a plan to save Joseph's life. He's going to try to come back and rescue him later. So when, verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So the other brothers go along with this plan to leave him in the pit to essentially starved to death, a slow death. Verse 25, then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. See, these cold-hearted brothers, numb to what they have just done, they don't even lose their appetites. Did you see that? They sat down and had a meal after they sold their brother into slavery. Then Judah, right, he had that idea. He tried to coat his greed with this, you know, moral compass or whatever. He, he had, well, let's don't, let's don't kill him. Let, let's sell him, right? I mean, let's at least make a profit off of this. So they betray their brother for some pieces of silver. So Joseph is now on his way to Egypt as a slave. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. 
And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. See, Reuben comes in and says, what am I going to do now? I'm the oldest. It was my responsibility to make sure everybody was safe or, right, so he's kind of feeling that. Or, Or maybe, maybe if Reuben returned Joseph to Jacob, maybe Reuben would have won back his father's favor and that firstborn status. Either way, now these brothers, they have to cover up their tracks, right? So they use the blood of this goat to try to cover up what they've done. And they take this robe with so much meaning and significance to their father back to him, and they deceive him. And as he holds that bloody robe of his favorite child, covered in what he thinks is animal's blood. He weeps. Verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So meanwhile, Joseph is is alive. Jacob doesn't know it. The brothers know it. But Joseph is alive, and now he's a slave in Egypt to a very important person, by the way. And we'll see how that story continues next week. But today, I want us to look specifically at these scenes this part of the story and ask the question, what what can we learn from this and how does this apply to our lives today? Well, I think we see in this story three relational sins that we must guard against. Three dangers, if you will. Three relational sins between us and someone else that we've got to guard against and we see them so clearly in this story. The first one is favoritism. You see, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And perhaps, perhaps one reason for this is that Joseph was Rachel's firstborn son. And if you remember the story, Joseph showed favoritism to Rachel, his wife. And so it would make sense that her firstborn son of the four women would be his favorite. So he gives Jacob this robe of many colors. Now, this robe is very significant because it's a status symbol. It's a declaration that Joseph, the 11th born among 12, he's going to be the leader of the family. That's what Jacob is saying when he blesses Joseph and gives him this gift. Essentially, Jacob is decreeing to the others that Joseph will inherit the firstborn status even though he's nowhere near the firstborn which means he's going to inherit, practically speaking, a double portion of inheritance and family power. So like we've been seeing throughout Genesis, that status of firstborn son was highly important in the ancient world. And like I mentioned, this is highly ironic because Jacob, more than anyone, he should have known better. Jacob knew what it was like to grow up 
with a dad who did not show him the affection that he longed for and that he needed. Jacob's dad, Isaac, loved his brother Esau more than him, but now here's Jacob making the same mistake and it's ruining his family. This favoritism. You know, I think all of us, I think all of us are prone to show favoritism in our lives, in our families, yes, but in other arenas of life as well. The theologian Tremper Longman says favoritism involves preferential treatment of some over others, particularly in relationships that should be equal. So siblings, right, should be loved the same by their parents. And he goes on to say this is a real temptation for parents today because, yes, some kids can be a little easier to parent at times. If you're a mom or a dad, you know what I'm talking about, right? But he says the temptation is to try to correct the behavior of the difficult child by heaping praise on the good one and using his or her behavior as a standard for the unfavored child to emulate. See, but that actually makes the situation worse because he says it gives the favored child a puffed up sense of themselves while it fuels the anger of the unfavored child toward the family as a whole. I think that's exactly what's happening here. I think that is exactly what's happening between Jacob and Joseph and Jacob and Joseph's brothers. See, this happens today. It happens all the time in families today. And if you are a parent here today or a guardian, you need to really think about this. We need to think about this. We need to guard against this. But it's not just families where we see favoritism. You may see it in the workplace. You may see it at your school. And at times, in our culture at large, especially when it comes to socioeconomic status, we do see it. But God's word has something to say about this. I want to read to you James chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and, and also verse 8 and 9. And this is the NIV version because he uses the word favoritism here in the English. So I want to read that to you. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. And then he says down in verse 8 and 9, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You see, we do tend to show favoritism to those who are like us, who can help further our personal agendas, to those who we think, according to the world standards, meet certain qualifications that are beneficial to us in some way. But the scriptures are very clear. The Lord does not look at outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. The Lord chooses the weak to shame the strong. 
Because the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We must train ourselves to see everyone the way God sees them. Every single person in this world is equally in need of God's grace. No, no person in this world has impressed God so much that they have earned his grace. Every single one of us are sinners in need of grace, equally desperate for God's grace. Therefore, we as Christians, as Christian parents to our own kids, as Christian citizens in this city and in this world, we should strive to model this mindset. Favoritism is not of God. We should seek to model the humility of Christ who gave up the riches of heaven to humble himself to become a poor man and live on this earth in the worst of conditions and die the worst possible death to free us so that we can love one another and extend the grace and humility he's given us to others. Favoritism is not of God. The second thing we see, though, in this story play out is jealousy. Jealousy is the second big sin we see in this story. Now, to be fair, Jacob's favoritism absolutely encouraged the brothers to be jealous of Joseph, especially with him wearing you know, the fancy robe everywhere to constantly remind them, right? Hey, guys, you see my new robe, right? They're constantly reminded that he is the favorite. And Joseph, you know, tattletelling and, and boasting about these dreams and how they're all going to bow down to one that doesn't help the matter either. But nonetheless, these brothers, they are in the wrong for responding the way they do. They're guilty themselves for letting jealousy rule over their hearts, and it leads them to do the unthinkable. But how, how can a little jealousy turn into this severe hatred and this murderous desire for their own brother, their own kin? Well, you see, that's what sin does. Sin of any kind. Jealousy, anger, lust, greed, sin of any kind will always try to take you further than you ever wanted to go. It will always evolve into something bigger than you ever meant it to be. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 says this about sin and the progression that it naturally takes. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, listen to this, when it is fully grown, brings death. That's the end result. And so what that implies is that between sin taking root in your heart and being fully grown, what is it doing in between? It's growing. It's growing, it's changing you, it's shaping your heart. 
Not, the grace of God is not what's shaping your heart. The sin is shaping your heart, and it's causing you to do things and say things and act in ways and think in ways that you never thought you would, but it adds a little bit of deception. It adds a little bit of twist in there every little step as the days progress, as you let this sin linger in your heart. You see, sin's objective is to eventually destroy you. Now, along the way, it's going to destroy all kinds of little relationships in your life. But the end goal is to destroy you. The end goal is to destroy you and the people you love the most. And I should say the real end goal, why? What's the why behind that? You see, Satan doesn't really care about you. He just doesn't want you to give glory to God. He just doesn't want you to be a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus in this world. So he's going to take sin and try to plant it somewhere in your heart, somewhere in your life, somewhere in your mind. And the end goal is not just to ruin you, it's to ruin the reputation of the Lord himself. That's what it's trying to do through you. So this jealousy, this jealousy in the brothers' hearts to have for themselves what Joseph had, they let it linger, this jealousy. They let it grow without confessing it as sin and asking the Lord to help them turn away from it. And so this jealousy is turning into something else. It's turning into hatred. And it eventually turns into murderous desire. So it grew and it grew. It became angry. And when it gave, when it was given the right opportunity, it was fully ready to destroy. You see, you may think that you're in no danger of this happening in your life. You may think, oh, okay, I'm a little jealous every now and then, but I mean, come on, Pastor Andrew, this is, you're, you're really stretching it here. Do you not see how this played out? Some of you are seriously struggling with jealousy in your life towards somebody maybe that you love or towards somebody you work with. You want what they have, but you think you can manage this desire in your heart. You think you can control it, but the truth is you can't. And if you let it linger without repenting of it, repent means to turn away from it and to, to confess it to the Lord and, and ask him to change you and, and help you overcome it. If you don't do that, it's going to overwhelm you. It's going to eventually control you and it's going to lead you to do unthinkable things. So ask yourself and just be honest with yourself. I'm not asking you to come up here and tell everybody. I'm just asking you in your seat, in your heart right now, be honest with yourself and with the Lord where is this true in your life? I mean, maybe your family's dysfunctional like Jacob's. And you see, you see someone else's family. And they try to make it look picture perfect. And listen, you cannot, look, nobody's version of themselves on Facebook is reality. Can we just admit that, right? It's like you only see the best of everyone on Facebook, right? So don't, don't, don't let that control your thoughts and think, oh, if my family was as cute as this one, if my family had what they have, we'd be so great. That's a real thought, man. That's a real temptation we have. Maybe you walk into a friend's house and you think, man, if I had this house, I'd be so much better off if I had this furniture. Now, Christy and I, we were in a furniture store earlier this week with our kids, and uh, we quickly realized that the price of this furniture store was far out of our budget when we realized that they had statues of animals for sale that are more expensive than the couch we wanted to buy. Um, <laughs> so my point is, I'm not going to say the name of the store, but my point is, 
right? We're more Ikea people, you know? I'd rather just spend four days putting the couch together, you know. Uh, but, but the point is, we, we're tempted all the time to, to go around the city, to go in these shops and these stores and these houses and with our friends, and we look and we see these things and think, man, if I had that, man, I'd be good to go. Whatever the example is, maybe you work with someone, and you're jealous because they seem to have more fun than you. Now, whatever the example is, the root problem is jealousy. It's wanting what someone else has and thinking that if you had their life, your life would be so much better. That's a lie. It's a very deceptive strategy of Satan, and we, we fall for it so often. But we must guard against this, because if we leave this unchecked, it will ruin our lives. We see evidence of this in the schemes and the deception of Satan in the third relational sin that this story points out, and that's deception. You can't help but notice the parallels in this story compared to Jacob's earlier life. Jacob, whose name, by the way, if you remember, means he deceives. Jacob once deceived his dad using goatskins and Esau's clothes. Remember, he pretended to be Esau. And now Jacob is being deceived by his sons. And what are they using? The blood of a goat and the clothes of his favorite son. You see, the real reason they did this was to cover up their sin. Well, that's what deception really is, right? Why do we feel this terrible desire sometimes to deceive those we love and, and deceive others? It's to cover something up. You see, deception is our go-to option when we need to cover our tracks, when we need to conceal our sin and make sure no one finds out about it. This leads us to deceive others, to not be honest about our sin. Dishonesty and deception will destroy your relationships. It will ruin your life if you resort to it. You know, this reminds me of Jacob's ancestors named Adam and Eve. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. They tried to cover their shame. They were afraid of being exposed as to what they had done, and they tried to hide from God. I quoted Tremper Longman earlier. He says again about this. He says, this is the irony of these dark desires. They actually destroy what we want. And did anyone really get what they wanted in this story we read today? They were all trying to get something and nobody got what they wanted. Jacob's favoritism actually ended up causing him to lose the son he loved. The brother's desire for their father's favor actually ended up driving him to great despair. This dysfunctional family tried to alleviate their dysfunction through these sinful means and ironically made things worse. You see, and in the wake, in the wake of our actions... What are we left doing when we let favoritism, 
jealousy rule our hearts. Deception takes over. We're just left trying to cover ourselves with some kind of fig leaf or goat's blood, whatever you want to call it, whatever kind of deception you think will work. So the question is, how, how do we get over this? How do we break free? How can we break free from being slaves to these sinful desires? How can we overcome our natural bent towards showing favoritism and, and being jealous of others and wanting what they have and acting deceptively to try to cover our tracks, whatever they may be? You see, many years later, someone in many ways like Joseph would come to this earth and he would be so much greater than Joseph. You see, like Joseph, Jesus Christ was hated by his Jewish brothers who were jealous of him and wanted to kill him. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed for some pieces of silver. Like Joseph, a robe was placed on Jesus, but instead, in a mocking fashion, by Roman guards who were preparing to crucify him. And like it became true for Joseph in Egypt, as we're going to see over the next few weeks, one day people will also bow down to Jesus in eternity. But there's one glaringly obvious difference with something in this story compared to Jesus. You see, the blood of the goat that the brothers used, the blood of the goat that the brothers dipped Joseph's robe in, they used it to cover up their sins. And that may have tricked Jacob, but it did not trick God. The blood that they used was insufficient. But the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient, more than enough to cover your sin. And that's exactly what we need to believe and know and affirm here in this place today. If you want to break free, if you want to break free from the entrapment of favoritism, jealousy, deception, if there is relational strife in your family between you and a sibling, you and a parent, you and a child, you and a work associate, anyone in your life, you and someone you go to school with, whoever it is, if you want to break free from these relational dangers that pose themselves to us constantly, that we're tempted by all the time, Our only hope, your only hope, is Christ himself. It's diving deeper into what he's already done for you. Believing in your heart deeply that he is enough for you. And you don't have to try to steal or take away or deceive something from someone else. Because you've already been given everything you could ever want or need. See, if we confess these sins... 
If we confess these sins to God and we believe that he truly will forgive us, the scriptures tell us that God gives us, listen to this, God gives you a new robe. It's true. He covers you with a robe of righteousness, with Christ's righteousness. If we give up trying to get ahead in life and make much of ourselves and instead humble ourselves as Christ did, we humble ourselves and we turn to him as our true Lord, our true king, the ruler over us, the one we gladly bow down to. If we believe what he has for us is truly enough, that his grace is sufficient for the rest of our lives, for all of our needs in this world, the Bible tells us that his righteousness is given to us. We sang about it earlier. His righteousness was interposed to you. It was given to you. His record is given to us. It replaces ours. He becomes our substitute. His blood covers our sins always and forever, and he makes you a new person. He changes you through the power of his Holy Spirit working. So instead of sin progressing and getting stronger and changing you, as we talked about earlier, leading to death, the Holy Spirit progressively changes you shapes you to who God intended for you to be all along, leading to life. And that, that's liberating because it frees us to be able to truly love others, doesn't it? When Christ has given us all we could ever need or want or imagine, and we value his love greater than any other love we could have in this world, truly in our hearts. That gratitude frees us to not live with selfish motives, taking advantage of others and manipulating them. It frees us to love as we have been loved. That's what these brothers needed. That's what Jacob needed. That's what you have if you know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord and you need somebody to talk to about that, please come find me after the service. I'll be out in the cafe. You can talk to Kyle. You can talk to one of our staff members. Come find us. We would love to talk with you more about what it means to truly follow Jesus to let him rule over your heart. But for now, I want us to pray. And I want you to be honest with the Lord about these sins. If you are seriously struggling with favoritism or jealousy or deception, would you confess that to the Lord right now? Let's pray, let's ask the Lord to change us, to set us on a path that leads to life. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful that your blood covers our sin. And that you give us righteous robes to wear. That you take off our dirtiness, 
our filthiness, our filthy rags, our sin. You take it off and you clothe us with your grace. Lord, Joseph's robe, I'm sure, was beautiful in many ways. But Lord, the robe that you clothe us in is so much grander and more beautiful and perfect. Because it's you, Lord, it's you, it's your love, it's your grace. It's your record for ours. So Jesus, we thank you for living the life on this earth for us that we could never live. And we thank you for dying the death for us in our place that we should have died. And we thank you, Lord, for raising from the grave and giving us your Holy Spirit, giving us new life and new direction, new hope. Thank you, Lord, that you make us new. Lord, I pray that every person in here would feel that newness today, whether they've known you for years or maybe they need to give their life to you now. Would you let this be true in our hearts today? Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray.